Welcome to the Race Through Space Read-Along Podcast, written and hosted by David Hawk. Welcome back to the Race Through Space Read-Along Podcast. My name is David Hawk, and I'm the author of The Race Through Space, which is available now on Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, and Audible. Last episode, we left off right after my brief encounter with filmmaker and podcaster Kevin Smith. He had encouraged me to keep moving forward and to keep on writing, and my wife suggested that I take my script and turn it into a short story. And that's where we'll pick up today. Normally, and especially up to the point where I decided to go to Hollywood, I'd always given up really easily, and I always seemed to be in a negative headspace. But this one trip fundamentally changed who I was. I was a person that worked hard for their dreams, I was someone who took risks, and I was someone who wasn't easily deterred. In the couple of years since I went to Hollywood, it's been two years now, I've been able to maintain that same mentality. I have found that you will go absolutely nowhere when you are stuck in a cycle of negativity. I still struggle with that from time to time, even to this very day. In the business of writing and of entertainment especially, you get a lot of people who tell you no. It is not easy to stay above the disappointment. But when I receive a no from an agent or from another publishing house, I tell myself that it just wasn't the right fit. I'm incredibly fortunate to have such an incredibly supportive family. So when I do fall into that negative headspace, they can help lift me out and look at the bigger picture. In return, I'm the positive and motivating person for my family and for my friends. Being successful in the literary entertainment world is all a numbers game. There are literally thousands of people who would want to represent you, who want to publish your book, who want to cast you in their movies, and who want to record your albums. Your main job is to keep moving forward, just as Kevin Smith told me to do. The worst thing you can do is give up. I will make one exception. Dreams are supposed to be fun, and you're supposed to follow them without the intent of becoming a famous author, actor, singer, etc. I've even given this advice to some of the author friends I've made over the last couple of years. If following your dreams is no longer fun, and if it's become more of a task than anything else, then that is a great point for you to hit the brakes. Even if it's only for a little while, while you try to rediscover why you loved whatever it was you wanted to pursue. It may take a few weeks or even maybe a few years, and you may never even find that answer. But do what makes you happy and stop doing the things that you have lost your passion for. So, I digress. I knew what I needed to do, and I got right to work. My goal was to take the Racy Space screenplay and convert it into a short story, so basically any story that's 20,000 words or less. My intent was that I would take the Racy Space short story and send it to publishers and literary agents. Then, once I found the home... I would expand the story into a full-length book. So as I was writing, another exciting thing happened. A couple weeks after my trip had ended, I received an email from one of the directors that I had sent the script to. She was primarily an indie director, but one of the few who I was able to find contact information from. She said that she would take a peek at the script, and she liked what she read. She agreed to read the entire thing, and she told me that although she wouldn't be able to actually make the movie, uh, she would be able to provide me feedback on the story itself. I jumped at the chance to get any kind of feedback from someone in the business. A week later, she got back to me. She gave me some great advice on how to make the script and the story better. I took her feedback, and it allowed me to have a clear focus when I wrote the story as a narrative. This is another piece of advice that I want to give you. Feedback is so incredibly important in life, and it is so rare to find people who give it to you in an unbiased manner. So when they do, you have to really take what they said to heart and not take it personally. 
So as I was crafting the short story, I decided to cut some scenes from the screenplay, add in some new ones, and change a few things here and there. My intent was always to go back and write a longer version of the story when I was picked up by a publisher. This is when everything gets exciting. I completed the short story within two weeks. Luckily, my lack of understanding about script writing helped there. One of the bits of feedback I got from the director was my script was too wordy and that it read more like a book. So once I finished the story, I gave it to my wife and my mom to edit. There weren't too many things to change, so I gave it one last look over and I marked it as complete. From there, I went right into writing the second Race to Space story. So now, I had this completed story and it was time to find it a home. Being a new author, I had no idea where to send the story and I had no idea where to even begin. So at the time, while my wife was pursuing a job in Seattle, I googled the best publishers in Seattle. Oddly enough, there are a lot of them. But the Seattle Times actually had a list of the best local publishers, and at the top of the list was a publishing house called books to go Now. books to go Now is what's called a boutique agency, meaning they cater to a small set of authors and that they specialize in brand new authors, like me. That sounded incredible. The downside was that they only published romance novels. But somebody told me that these guys would be right for me, so I sent them my story anyway. The Books to Go Now submission form says that it takes them normally six to eight weeks before they decide on going for a book. But within a week, they had gotten back to me. They wanted to publish my story as is, and they wanted me to write as a three-part series of novellas. I had done it. I was offered my first contract as a writer, and I haven't looked back. Since that day, I have published the three Race Through Space novellas separately, and then it was re-released as the Race Through Space trilogy. I have since written and published the full-length continuation of the series, Race Through Space Event Horizon, and I'm currently editing Event Horizon 2. Additionally, I have published an adult horror story called The Christmas Rose, and I've written a full-length book called Caldera that I hope to publish sometime in 2020. Additionally, I have a whole board full of projects to work on that will keep me busy for many years to come. So there you go. That's the full story on the whole 10-year journey from the first time I had the Race to Space Inception in my mind to the very moment that it was published by books to go now This week, we'll be starting Race to Space 2, The Wave of Time. This is still my favorite story I've ever written. Every time I write a Race to Space story, I want to make it different. The great thing about this story was that I have already established the universe within the first book, so now it's time to write a story that lives within that universe. I love the worlds, the stories, the creatures, and especially the twist that it ends. So let's get to it. Today I'll be reading chapters 1-4 through four from the Race Through Space to the Wave of Time from the Race Through Space trilogy. We will begin on page 80. Stephen Webb sat in front of a weak fire and stared into the dancing flame. He wore a puffy red cold weather suit and he breathed rapidly, his lungs unable to get enough air. A moan came from a yellow sleeping bag lying on the littered ground to Stephen's left. The figure rolled toward him. It was Dr. William Lowell. His eyes were closed and beads of sweat pooled on his forehead. Water, said the figure from inside the sleeping bag. Stephen got up and pulled out a hose hanging from his camelback water pouch. He extended the hose to Dr. Lowell's lips and squeezed five drops of water onto his friend's extended tongue, swollen with dehydration. Just then, a distant crack echoed throughout the darkened shelter. Stephen stood up and walked through the darkness until he came to a black wall. A deep roar enveloped the cavernous room, and it was getting louder. He ran his hand along the wall until he found what he was looking for. There was a sharp screeching sound as Stephen turned the rusted handle of a heavy iron door, and he pushed it open. Stephen barely opened the door when it was ripped from his hands, 
and he was nearly sucked out of the opening. The roaring sound ended abruptly. Stephen fell to the ground. He got up slowly and walked outside the door. He scanned the dim horizon and saw the lightning flashes from a retreating storm. Soon, all sound had dissipated. There was no light and no signs of life. Stephen looked up at a sky full of unknown stars and a spiral galaxy was visible in the southern sky. Stephen took several steps outside of the building. The entire area was flat, brown, and dead. A glinting ray of light ahead of Stephen caught his eye. He walked to where the light originated. He bent down and saw that it was a pool of water reflecting the moonlight. He took off his gloves and reached into a deep pocket on his left leg. He pulled a long plastic package. He ripped it apart and pulled out a thin pipette. Stephen stuck the tip of the pipette into the surface of the pool of water and withdrew a tiny mouth. He pulled up the sleeve of his left arm and on his wrist was a large square smartwatch. He released two drops of water from the pipette onto the face of the smartwatch. Other than a higher than nominal amount of iron oxide, the water is drinkable. I would advise boiling before consumption, said a voice coming from the watch. The voice was from Stephen's AI companion, Ralph. Where did this come from? It wasn't here before. And what about the storm? He asked out loud, unconscious to the fact that he was talking to himself. And how can there be storms here? The sun is too dim and it's too cold. Air temperatures have increased 8 degrees Celsius, 46 degrees Fahrenheit, Ralph said from Stephen's watch. How? Stephen asked, his voice trailing off. Stephen took as deep of a breath as he could manage on the oxygen-depraved world. He exhaled a faint mist in the cold air. His breath glimmered in the moonlight. Moonlight. Stephen turned around, and hanging above the structure was a full moon that occupied a quarter of the dark sky. Its blue light shined down faintly on the desolate world. But if there's no sunlight, how can there be moonlight? Stephen thought to himself. He looked back toward the west and strained to find the dim sun in the darkened sky. He saw a sliver of white light just above the horizon. He stood watching the light for hours, and if the light expanded, he couldn't detect it. Stephen turned and walked back toward the shelter. He went in the door and back through the darkness. He had trouble navigating his way to where Dr. Lowell laid by the fire. The world outside was just bright enough to compromise his night vision. He stopped and stood still for several minutes until his eyes acclimated to the dark. He could just make out the fire ahead of him. When he arrived back at the camp, he saw that Dr. Lowell had opened his sleeping bag. The shadows of the dying fire danced across his bare, bloody chest. Stephen went down onto his knees. He once again pulled out the hose of his camel back and released several drops of water onto his friend's lips. Dr. Lowell's tongue reflexively licked his lips to retrieve it. Stephen sat down on the hard ground close to the fire. Why is there water? He asked himself again out loud. Because the ice melted, said a weak voice coming from the sleeping bag. Stephen scrambled over to his friend and saw that Dr. Lowell's eyes were open and alert. Dr. Lowell looked up at him. I know I'm going to die, bro, and I'm okay with it. But we need to get you home, he said. Will, you're not going to die. Neil's on his way, and he's going to be here any minute, Stephen said, trying to hide the lie in his voice. Come on, dude. We both know that's not true, his friend said, smiling. Stephen didn't answer. We gotta get you home. While I'm still alive, I will do everything I can to get you back to your boy, Dr. Lowell said. Two tears shrieked down Stephen's dirt-covered face. There's water because the ice melted, Dr. Lowell said, laboring to speak. The real question is why did the ice melt? Could be geothermal. Volcano nearby, perhaps? Stephen said, looking off into the dark shelter. But I heard a huge roar coming from outside. When I went to check it out, I was almost swept away by a huge storm. On top of that, the temperature has gone up 40 degrees. 
It's the sun, Dr. Lowell replied. Why do you think that, Stephen asked? Unless I was hallucinating. I heard you say there was a sun, but it was really dim. What if there's something blocking it, and the planet's orbit is moving past whatever is obstructing it? Suddenly, the sun comes out. It warms up the planet and melts the ice. Get enough water, and you have a storm. Stephen contemplated Dr. Lowell's theory. You know what? Stephen asked. When I was out there, I could see just a sliver of light coming from the sun. Maybe we're moving into sunlight. You got anything to eat? Dr. Lowell asked. I have a chicken soup MRE I was hoping to give you, but I was running out of water, Stephen said, pulling a silver pouch from his backpack. I think finding water on a dead planet is cause for celebration. Stephen tore into the MREs, poured its content into a pot of heated water, and then began spoon-feeding his friend. Talking and thinking drained Dr. Lowell of his energy reserves. His eyes fluttered, then closed as he fell back to sleep. Stephen was once again by himself, but this time he felt something that he hadn't felt in days. Optimism. I wanted to start this book where we finished the last one, where we were with Neil's dad, Stephen, on a desolate planet. On this planet, Dr. Lowell is very sick and his wounds have become infected. And the problem is that Stephen doesn't know if the infection is uh, an Earth-born bacteria or if it's caused by an alien bacteria. So it's making it much more difficult to heal him. So at this time, Stephen's feeling very alone. Luckily, he was able to find shelter for him and Dr. Lowell, and he found it within an abandoned structure that he found. The inside of the structure is full of everyday items like paper and broken furniture, and that shows that the planet once had intelligent life, but there's no sign of that civilization anywhere around them. However, they both did have to survive. So even if they're on a planet that has no natural resources, I couldn't just kill them off right away because uh, that would be bad for the story. So they did have to survive. I needed to come up with a way for them to live. So that's when I came up with the idea of the storm. Also in Chapter 1, we get to see some of the cool gadgets that Steven has invented and even more of Ralph's capabilities. And I also really like the conversation that Steven and Dr. Lowell have. When you're a brainstorming a problem, it's really important that you are able to bounce ideas off another person. It changes your perspective, and it puts everyone on the same page. Everything that I've written regarding the dim sum and the appearance of the storm can actually happen. That's a key element for the series. I continually ask myself, could this really happen in real life? On to Chapter 2. On a planet trillions of miles away, Neil landed on top of Marie, just as the wormhole singularity closed behind him. A black arrow carved with intricate alien symbols, pierced the stand beside them. That was close, Neil said. Time to get off now, Marie snapped back. Neil rolled off of Marie and onto his back. He stared up into the pale blue sky. Painted across the sky were countless sets of rings circling the planet. Neil heard the rhythmic rolling of waves to his left. He rolled onto his side, and an immense ocean laid before him. A white sun sat just above the horizon. It was half the size of Earth's own star, and its light sparkled off the low rolling waves. Above the white sun, a much smaller red sun hung in the sky. The ocean world orbited in a binary system. His eyes burned as they acclimated to the bright planet, having just been in the complete darkness of the simian jungle. He got to his feet and stared out over the ocean. Marie stepped up beside him. Endless flat beaches extended in both directions. Behind them were rolling green hills. There were no trees and no flowers just tall grass that swayed in the breeze. Where are we? Neil said. Welcome to Amphibios, said Ralph, coming from Neil and Marie's translators. Amphibios? Like as in frogs? Marie asked. Yes, precisely, Ralph said. 
There's frog people here? Neil asked. No, it's nothing like that, Ralph explained. When I was unable to find a suitable translation for the name of the planet, your father named it after the first creature he came across. The first creature your father discovered when he arrived here was a large frog. Are there any intelligent species on this planet? Neil asked. Amphibios appears to be a planet recovering from an extinction event. Not that dissimilar to Earth following the Chicxulub asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs, Ralph explained. All I want to know is, what creatures are going to try to kill me? Marie asked. From Stephen's research, there is not much that will pose a threat to you. It was his assumption that the Teva placed this world along their wormhole track to observe a planet evolve from the very beginning. That's reassuring, Neil said. Can we swim in the ocean? Marie asked. The salt content of the ocean is greater than that of the Great Salt Lake. You would barely dip below the surface, Ralph said. Before he could finish, Marie ran to the waves and jumped into the ocean. Neil watched her float on the surface, moving with the waves as they rolled to the shore. Neil took off his shirt, shoes, and the wormhole device and followed Marie into the ocean. They rode the waves for an hour. By the time they walked out of the amphibious ocean, the white sun had dipped below the horizon and turned the sky an intense violet color. A light breeze prickled their wet skin and dried them, leaving a salty residue behind. Marie flopped down onto the sand and started making a sand angel. Neil sat beside her. He slipped the wormhole device back onto his arm, and he put his translators back into his ears. Um, B, Neil sighed deeply. Yeah, think, dude? Marie clapped back. We almost got killed by the Darrow. We went through two wormholes, and we just swam for an hour in an alien ocean. I'd say that was a pretty full day. I wonder if we can just sleep on the beach, Neil asked. You can. I just wouldn't recommend it, Ralph said. There are worm-like creatures that live under the sand. At night, they burrow to the surface and make their way to the ocean. Stephen named these Slinkies, Ralph explained. Why are they called Slinkies, Marie asked. Before Ralph could answer, a pink, hairless head poked out of the sand two feet in front of Neil. The slinky wormed its way out of the sand and slithered toward the rolling waves. The two of them sat in wonder as the ten-foot-long slinky made its way to the ocean. The worm had hundreds of ribs that gave it the look of a pink slinky covered in skin. Oh, that's why, Marie said. Soon, several pink heads emerged down the beach. It wasn't long until one poked its head directly between the two of them. They jumped to their feet, grabbed their bags, and ran to the lush hills. When they made it to the grass, four squat frogs jumped out at them. They had smooth green and black skin and sat low to the ground. They had two long, curved horns on their forehead, like long-horned steer. Neil moved out of the way just as one of the frogs leapt from the grass and onto the beach, where it extended its jaw and clamped down on an unsuspecting slinky. The worm-like creature reeled back and whipped at the frog's head, letting out a shrill cry. The horned frog shook the slinky like a dog toy and the slinky went limp. Neil Marie stood with their mouths open as the frog sucked the slinky into its cavernous mouth while made an obscene slurping sound. Neil slowly stepped backward, caught his foot on a rock, stumbled, and fell onto his butt, pulling Marie down with him. The tall grass impeded their view of the ocean or the hills behind. Ew, Marie said. Ew is right, said a voice from behind Neil and Marie. That's not Ralph, Neil said. Neil heard the sound of grass crunching behind them, and a figure emerged from the darkness. He couldn't see who the figure was. Marie clamped down on Neil's hand. There was a clicking sound, and a light exploded in their faces. I figured I'd meet you here, said the dark figure. He turned the light onto his face. No way, Neil whispered. He stood up, ran, and leapt onto the shadowy figure, and they both went tumbling into the grass. Marie ran up behind Neil, and she saw a flashlight lying on the ground. She picked it up and pointed it toward a groaning sound coming from the tall grass. 
the light cut Neil helping up an old man with a silver ponytail and a black t-shirt. I'm an old man, Neil, said the man with the ponytail. I'm fragile. Neil grabbed the old man's hand and pulled him towards Marie. Marie? This is Grandpa Al. I had such a blast writing this chapter. First of all, we get to welcome Neil and Marie back into the story. And now they're on a planet that's completely different than Simia. Amphibious is a planet that is recovering from an extinction event. So there are no large predators and only a few creatures that have it the planet. The ocean on Amphibious has a very high salinity. So that would enable them to float. The reason is that saltwater tends to be more dense than our bodies. And so our bodies would actually float on the surface. The example that I gave is the Great Salt Lake in Utah. The lake has such a high salinity that people will actually float on the surface. I also really enjoyed coming up with the idea for the slinkies and the horned frogs. The slinkies burrow into the beach so they can climb out of their holes and quickly make their way to the ocean. I gave them a bunch of ribs on their body so that it will help them burrow into the beach sand and help them get out. And also gave the frogs horns. And that way they can use those to dig up the slinkies. But also because Amphibios has such high grass, they also use their horns to help clear their sight. And finally in this chapter, we get to meet Grandpa Al. Chapter 3 Stephen was startled from a restless sleep by a sharp cracking sound that reverberated through the interior of the shelter. He shot off from his sleeping bag, making him dizzy from sitting up too quickly. What the? Stephen asked himself. Thunder, said Dr. Lowell weakly from his sleeping bag. Thunder? Stephen asked. Yeah, it's been going on for about an hour. From the sound of it, it rained a bunch too, Dr. Lowell said. Stephen listened to the storm howl past. When the storm ended, he stood up and walked towards the door. He could see a white rectangle floating in the darkness. He started walking faster towards the light before taking off into a sluggish sprint. His footsteps reverberated through the shelter. Just as he reached the extraordinarily bright light, his foot hit a small puddle of water and he hydroplaned straight out of the door and spilled onto the muddy ground. He tumbled through the mud and landed into a shallow pool of water. He picked his head up and sat back on his knees. He wiped the mud from his eyes, but had trouble processing what his eyes were seeing. He was surrounded by a never-ending expanse of grass and wildflowers. He had never seen colors so intense, not even during the spring bloom in Mountain View. He could smell the storm as it barreled away. He stood up and slowly walked into a field that had sprouted just in front of the shelter. He walked to one of the flowers, picked it, and brought it close to his eyes so he could take a look at it more closely. The purple and red petals were made of hundreds of small triangles and radiated from its black center. He brought it up to his nose and inhaled the flower's sweet scent. It smelled like honeysuckle. He bent down and pulled a handful of the flowers out from the dirt. Flora, Stephen said to himself, I will name the planet Flora. Stephen stopped at a deep puddle of rainwater left by the passing storm. He knelt down to the ground and laid the flowers beside him. He grabbed his camel bag from his back and took out the water bladder. He unscrewed the top and submerged it into the puddle, filling up the bladder with the cold water. He screwed the lid back on and returned it to its pack. He grabbed the flowers and headed to the door of the shelter. When Stephen arrived back at the camp, he found Dr. Lowell propped up on his elbow, sweat shining on his forehead and smiling. Those look like flowers, Dr. Lowell said, seeing the bundle of alien flowers in Stephen's hand. The entire horizon is covered with them. All in less than a day, Stephen said inquisitively. Makes sense, Dr. Lowell replied. I'm thinking these plants don't get a lot of sunshine. So when the sun comes out, they've got to make the most of it. The real question is whether or not we can use them. I have a chemical analyzer on Ralph, and maybe he can tell us what these plants are made of, Stephen answered. Are you hungry? We can split a beef stew. 
Nah, I'm good. I'm just gonna chill, said Dr. Lowell. Let me know when Ralph is done looking at those flowers. Dr. Lowell struggled to keep his eyes open and he finally succumbed to sleep. Stephen looked down at his best friend and began to cry. He always thought of himself as an optimist, but right now, as Dr. Lowell's fever radiated from him, he was consumed with helplessness. He was helpless to save his friend's life. He was helpless to escape. Either his father or Neil would find him, or they wouldn't, and there was nothing he could do to change the outcome. Stephen threw himself into documenting every event on this planet. It was the only thing that kept the helplessness from overwhelming him. Stephen prepared a sample of the flowers so Ralph could analyze it. He pulled out a small pair of scissors from his pack. He cut off a red petal and then a purple one. He put his scissors away and pulled out a small knife from his belt. He used the edge to prop open the crystal face of the smartwatch. He carefully put the red petal inside and snapped the face back down. The watch lit up and a green laser scanned the petal. Would you like to analyze any additional organic materials, Dr. Webb? Ralph asked. Ralph, you know I told you not to call me Dr. Webb, Stephen said out loud. My apologies. The situation presented itself as one to use your official title, Ralph said back apologetically. Stephen opened the face of the watch again, removed the ashy remnants of the red petal, and he put the purple petal onto the watch and scanned it. I will have your results available in one hour, Ralph said. In Chapter 3, we flip back to Stephen and Dr. Lowell as they continue their struggle for survival. Another storm passes by, and that's when Stephen goes to investigate, and that's where he sees sunlight for the first time. When he goes outside, he's shocked to see that there are colorful flowers that have sprouted everywhere, and then only in just a few hours. This is something that could actually happen. The seeds on this planet give very little rain and very little sun. So when they do get it, they have to make the most of their time. They sprout and flower and distribute their seeds on the wind. This is very similar to the flowers that are in deserts, such as like the Sahara or Death Valley or the Atacama Desert. Anytime they get even just a little amount of rain, they bloom all over the place. So I took my inspiration from those environments. And for the first time, we see that this planet, Flora, which Stephen has named after the flowers that he's seen, the gravity is actually greater than that on Earth. That causes Stephen to tire easily, and it takes greater effort to move. In a, a situation where our bodies are in an environment where the gravity is greater than that on Earth, we'll eventually adapt to it, but in the meantime, we'll be extremely exhausted. And finally, Chapter 4. Neil Marie stood in front of Neil's grandfather. His silvery ponytail fluttered in the ocean breeze. Grandpa Al had a short silver beard and wore a faded black Sabbath t-shirt and tan cargo shorts. The top of his head was covered by a straw cowboy hat and he had a thick pack slung on his back. On his left arm was a small iPad attached to an armband. How are you here? Neil asked, hardly believing that he was staring at his grandfather. You're going to hate this answer, but now is not story time, Grandpa Al said. We need to clear a space to camp before it's full dark, and we should get some shut-eye. The nights here are pretty short, and I have a feeling tomorrow's going to be a very full day. I'm done with that, Marie said through a yawn. It wasn't the answer Neil wanted, but he started helping Marie and his grandfather pull out a section of tall grass and laying it down so they didn't have to sleep on the bare ground. It's freezing. Can we build a fire? Marie asked. I don't recommend it. These grasses are chemically identical to oleander on Earth, Grandpa Al told her. And, she replied, Oleander is poisonous when you burn it, Grandpa Al said back. Marie gave Grandpa Al a double thumbs up. Good call, Grandpa Al, she said. Using their packs as pillows, the three of them stared up into the alien night sky. Would you look at that, Grandpa Al said, pointing to the sky. 
He pointed to a spot where the bands of the galaxy crisscrossed the planet's rings, leaving a floating X in the night sky. Before long, Grandpa Al's choppy snores filled the air. I'd say on the top ten scariest days of my life, today was numero uno, Marie said to Neil. No doubt, said Neil. Marie sat up and took her hoodie out of her pack, put it on, and laid back down. She turned over, and soon Neil could hear her snoring lightly. He took Marie's cue and pulled out his own sweatshirt that read, Mountain View, Colorado, elevation 7,950 feet, and put it on. He hoped that when he fell asleep, he would connect with his father. He fell asleep with rejuvenated hope and optimism. A short time later, the white sun began to peek out from the grassy horizon and obeyed the world in an orange glow. Neil was still deeply asleep when he felt a tapping on his shoulder. He opened his eyes and they worked hard to focus on what had tapped him. The tapping stopped and he drifted back to sleep. Then he felt the tapping again, this time on his right leg. He attempted to swat whatever it was tapping at him, but he was met with a chorus of high-pitched honking sounds that startled him awake. Neil was surrounded by dozens of foot-high creatures that were covered in thick fur and each of them had different color variations of black, white, and green. They reminded him of hairy basketballs. Extending from the round bodies were four long legs that ended in what looked like cat's paws and they had long pink noses that resembled an anteater. Neil quickly made his way to his feet and saw that his grandfather and Marie were still asleep and completely unaware of the situation. The creatures didn't frighten him. He slowly tiptoed through and over them until he stood over Marie. He knelt down and lightly shook her awake. She opened her eyes and Neil held his index finger up across his lips, telling her to be quiet. He pointed behind him. Marie slowly rolled over and put on her ground glasses, trying not to make a sound. The only sound she made was a startled intake of breath when she saw the round creatures, who were now using their paws to dig up the grass near where Neil was sleeping. There was an excited honking sound that was loud enough to wake up Neil's grandfather. One of the creatures stood on its rear legs and a flood of black spider-like insects erupted from a small hole in the ground. The creatures used their nose to suck up the scuttling insects. They gorged themselves until every insect was consumed and the creatures slipped back into the tall grass. What does it say that stuff like this doesn't faze me anymore? Marie asked, nobody in particular. You're the first people in human history to have observed those particular animals, Neil's grandfather said. Neil, you've discovered them, so you can name them. Really? Neil asked. How about we call them... Spalding? Spaldings? Marie asked, inquisitively. Yeah, Spaldings. Those things look like basketballs on stilts, Neil replied. Spaldings it is, said Grandpa Al. What are you doing for breakfast, chef? asked Marie. I've brought some MRE pouches that we can share, Grandpa Al said. While we eat, we can discuss our present situation. Neil watched his grandfather pull two silver packages out of his pack and tear them open. Then his grandfather pulled out a box and three flat aluminum discs. His grandfather popped the discs into bowls, then handed the box to him and the bowls to Marie. Let's go cook us some breakfast, his grandfather said. The three of them walked through the tall grass and back to the beach. The sand showed no sign of the slinkies or the longhorn frogs. Both binary suns had risen above the horizon. Grandpa Al took the box from Neil's hands and he put it down onto the sand. He opened the sides of the box and they were lined with aluminum, as was the interior. He walked to Marie, grabbed the bowls, and put them on the bottom of the box. He tore open the MRE pouches, dumped their contents into the bowls, and he added water from his water bottle. With this task complete, Grandpa Al walked back towards his grandson and his friend. Grandpa Al, what is that thing? Marie asked. That's a solar oven, he answered. Usually, they don't work too well on Earth, but out here, with two suns, it should work quite well. 
You ought to get a dip in the ocean while breakfast heats up. You don't need to tell me twice, Marie said, throwing off her hoodie as she ran towards the ocean. Neil ran behind her, throwing off his shirt as they both jumped into the ocean and floated on the waves. Soon, breakfast was ready and Grandpa Al let out a sharp whistle. Neil turned his head, thinking that it was Yima that had whistled to them from the beach, and said he saw his grandfather signaling for them to come out of the water. Neil and Marie trudged out of the ocean, and they dried rapidly in the warm heat from the binary suns. They plopped down onto the sand. Neil's grandfather handed them steaming bowls of breakfast and a small plastic spoons. Marie took a bite inside. Who would have thought powder beans and eggs would be so amazing, she asked. The three of them ate slowly, and they savored their meager breakfast until Neil broke the silence. How are you here? Neil asked his grandfather. The last time I talked to my dad, he hadn't been able to reach you. What do you mean you've talked to your dad? His grandfather asked almost immediately. I've had a couple of these dreams, Neil said. They're more like visions, really. What did he say? Well, the last time I talked to him, he was on a dead planet, and the Dr. Lowell's hurt pretty bad. That's incredible, Neil's grandfather said, almost imperceptibly. What do you think it means, Neil asked. Not sure, Grandpa Al answered, rubbing his chin. The Tiva could have created a way to communicate telepathically through the wormhole. Or it could be that you and your father's bonds are so strong that your consciousness is connecting you through the vastness of space and time. Neil took a last bite of his eggs. Why don't you tell me what happened to you, and then afterward we can figure out what to do next, Neil's grandfather said. Neil told his grandfather about seeing his father and Dr. Lowell leave in the middle of the show and not returning, then about going to the lab where he received his father's emergency message. Marie jumped in and told Grandpa Al about their voyage to Simia, being attacked by the Daro twice, and how they ended up on Amphibios. Neil looked at his grandfather. Now, your turn. In Chapter 2, we are introduced to Grandpa Al, but it's not until Chapter 4 that we actually get to meet him. When I wrote the screenplay, I wrote a bunch of character bios for the main characters. So even though Grandpa Al wasn't in the, the first story all that much, um, I wrote a biography about him. But what I wrote about Grandpa Al is that he's also a scientist, and that he had to raise Stephen by himself. And that's because his wife, Sally, had passed away when Stephen was very young. Also in this chapter, we get to experience the beauty of amphibios. Besides the white beach, the blue water, and the grass, it's also a ringed planet with two suns. The rings were formed when its moon got too close and broke apart. And then we were finally introduced to an animal that Neil called a spalding. My image of these guys was that it looked like an animal swallowed a basketball. They have round bodies propped up on long legs, and they have evolved to have these long snouts so they can burrow underground to get at the bugs that are under the surface. Yes, I did take the name from Wilson and Castaway because this is kind of like my version of a Castaway story. There you have it. There is the first four chapters of The Race to Space, The Wave of Time. On next week's episode, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the publishing process and then all about the excitement around the book's debut. So thank you so much for joining me today. If you like what you're hearing, make sure you share this program and follow us on whichever podcast platform that you're listening on. And if you'd like to throw down a couple of bucks to support Truckee Pacific Productions, you can go to our Venmo at Truckee Pacific. And finally, if you want to shoot me any comments, you can email me at DaveTheWriter303 at gmail.com. You can check me out on Facebook at DaveTheWriter303, on Instagram at DavidHawk303, and on Twitter at DavidHawk303. Have a good night. Be safe, and if you happen to be outside, take a look up at the stars.
the Race Through Space Read-Along Podcast is a Truckee Pacific production. For comments or sponsorship inquiries, please go to truckeepacificproductions at gmail.com.